Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have all of you with us for Political Rewind today. It's February 11th, if you're listening in real time. And that is a day that people who are political junkies have had marked on their calendars for months because today is the New Hampshire primary. It's like Christmas for people who love politics. And we're going to spend some time during this show talking about New Hampshire and uh, what we expect could happen up there, what it might mean as the race moves forward and eventually marches toward Georgia with a terrific panel that we've assembled for today. Tamar Hallerman is with us. She's a senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and uh, has become a regular since moving to Atlanta from Washington. We're so glad you're here. Tamar, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Sure. Right next to you, uh, Lori Geary. Lori, the former political reporter for WSB-TV in Atlanta, station that became known for coverage of politics. And Lori, you should sort of spent your time in New Hampshire as political reporter at Channel 2. Well, I had big shoes to fill, Bill. Yeah, it, well, you, you more than filled them, Lori. I, I, Lori followed me in that job. But, but Lori, now, in addition to the communications firm that she uh, has, Lori Geary Media? Is that yes, uh-huh. Uh, also is the host of the weekly show Georgia Gang on uh, Fox 5, uh, WAGA, Sunday mornings at 8.30. That's correct. You know, Laurie, I was just thinking about that show. We're very proud here at GPB that this year Lawmakers is celebrating its 50th anniversary on wow. the air. It's the longest-running TV show in Georgia. But I was thinking the heritage of Georgia Gang Georgia Gang's been on the air for 30-plus years as well. Isn't that right? That's right, because it started out doing shows about the missing and murdered children of Atlanta. So that's been 35. Oh, closer to 40 years. Yeah, so it's been a long time running. And, of course, Dick Williams, it was his baby. Yeah, yeah. So so you can uh, watch Lori on on Sunday mornings at uh, 8.30 on uh, Fox 5. Uh, We're also joined today by Edward Lindsay, former state representative for... Atlanta, and uh, now a partner at the world's largest law firm, <laughs> Denton's. How are you, Edward? I'm doing great. Always happy to be here. Yeah. Fun group. Yeah, today. it's fun to have you with us today. And Buddy Darden, former Democratic congressman from Georgia, 7th District, back in the days when that district, we said it before, sprawled from virtually the Chattahoochee River to almost the state of Tennessee. To the Chattanooga city limits. Yeah. And a former state legislator back by popular demand. You know what? I never mentioned that you served in the state legislature and even before that were district attorney in Cobb County. That's correct. Yeah, that's right. First district attorney, then state legislator. That's correct. All right. Fine. Uh, All right, everybody. We're going to talk New Hampshire. We'll get to that in a couple minutes. But but let's look at some state news uh, before we get there. Um, We're all paying, I think, pretty close attention to the way in which this battle between Kelly Leffler, the appointed member of the U.S. Senate, appointed by Brian Kemp, is beginning to do battle with uh, Doug Collins, who's jumped into the race. And uh, the intensity of this battle has, I guess, is not surprising tomorrow. It's picked up very, very quickly. It's gotten very aggressive. And um, 
Why don't we start by doing this? Let me, if I can, let, let's play a spot that the Club for Growth has been particularly involved in this as a surrogate for Kelly Leffler. And they've been on the warpath already attacking Doug Collins. Here's a spot they just literally dropped in the last day. Borrow, print, spend again and again and again. Year after year, it's the same song and dance from D.C. politicians like Congressman Doug Collins. Collins voted to raise the debt ceiling, back nearly $400 billion in new spending. Even voted to preserve taxpayer funding for the San Francisco Opera. Music to the ears of Nancy Pelosi. Tell Collins, tear up D.C.'s credit card. Go sponsor House Resolution 149, recognizing debt as a threat to our security. So uh, if you're listening to that, uh, you'll see it eventually in, in some digital form or on TV. We see a picture of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is, I believe, uh, tomorrow the devil incarnate. <laughs> At least uh, in these ads, apparently. <laughs> She's dancing in the ad. We, of course, see Speaker Nancy Pelosi ripping up the president's State of the Union You know what speech. kind of interview I want to see is somebody who does Photoshop for all of these groups, who gets to Photoshop pictures of people like Doug Collins next to Nancy Pelosi, next to AOC. There must be some great stories there. Um, but, but the fact, what's interesting about this, uh, Lori, is that um, Club for Growth, I mean, many of the things they're attacking Doug Collins for are standard operating business in Washington. I mean, of course you vote to increase the debt ceiling. Otherwise, the government basically goes out of business. Well, um, and you would also think that this would be an ad targeting Raphael Warnock, <laughs> not Doug Collins. Well, that's a really interesting right? point. Right. I mean, you really can't get any further right than Doug Collins. I mean, he's more tied to President Trump. I think he, he's mostly tied to President Trump than any other congressperson, right? And Doug Collins is a fighter. We know he's going to fight back no matter what. I mean, that's what he does. And so to see this ad and to see Doug Collins tied to Nancy Pelosi, it's almost comical, yeah. Yeah. you know, because, I mean, he is so far right and uh, so Ed, conservative. Edward, we should point out Club for Growth has never been a fan of Doug Collins because of the very things they talk about. They basically don't want to see any increase in spending. They're very, very conservative. So, Well, I, I serve with Doug Collins. Doug Collins is a friend of mine. the state legislature. Uh, Doug Collins is no Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the fact of the matter is that these particularly third-party groups come in, and they can take some isolated vote that you did and twist it uh, 16 ways to Sunday. And, and Buddy and I who have both served in, in legislative bodies and cast thousands of votes, uh, you know, you can, it, it's sometimes amazing how people can twist things around. I always said that, you know, you can take, go out, go and find five of my votes and you can paint me as the most left-wing radical pinko. You can paint me as the most right-wing uh, fascist. You can paint me down the middle. But if you take five votes in isolation, you can paint somebody any way they oh, want. Given that, buddy, nevertheless, uh, this is part of the messaging. And, and yes, you can distort somebody's record. But what's fascinating about this is Club for Growth has also attacked him on his vote in favor of the farm bill and the bailout to farmers across the country, uh, that measure, just like increasing the debt ceiling, these are things that President Trump has uh, signed off on. I mean, he signed the farm bill. Absolutely. They dinged me one time in one of those type of ads for supporting a study which studied the reproductive habits of fruit flies. So there's always something 
going on like this, but obviously Goldilocks, uh, Kelly Leffler's behind this. So, oh, whoa, uh, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. That was a you're that was a kind of a cheap shot, buddy. Cheap shot. Yeah. Goldilocks. Oh, what's wrong with that? Oh, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> and, and, and this, this is just part of it. And they talk about how these groups are independent. These groups aren't independent. They pretend that they are, but they all coordinated and do these things. This is just another way to pour more money in the campaign. But, but frankly speaking, uh, these ads, I think, are, in, at least in my view, are comical and and very counterproductive and. I just think they're off on the wrong track. So I, I take it from your comments that you are not a fan of Kelly Leffler as a Oh, senator. I'm not a fan of Doug Collins either. <laughs> All right. <laughs> or Raphael Warnock. Really? Uh, I'm still trying to figure out what are the sexual habits of fruit flies. Uh, yeah, well, we're gonna, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out then, is, is Doug Collins the big bad wolf? Oh, no. That, 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 <laughs> if we're talking Goldilocks, yeah. I mean. Good point. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. But there's not enough room on the runoff ballot after the jungle primary for both Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler. And Tamar, that's what we're talking about here. I mean, this is is truly a battle for the heart and soul of the Trump voters in Georgia. And and each of them is going to make the case that they are more Trumpian uh, uh, than the other as they move forward. Yeah, there's there's two points I want to make um, on this ad to kind of put it into context. The first is kind of the club for growth and where they've come from the last couple of years. And a lot of these votes that they're digging, dinging Doug Collins for are things that are very standard operating procedure in Washington. You need to pass a budget to keep the government open. You know, a farm bill is something you do about twice a decade. Raising the debt ceiling is something you need to keep the country going. Until about 10, 20 years ago, these bills passed no problem. They were standing operating procedures. It was groups like the club that started that have made them such a big deal that have turned the, you know, forced a lot of Republican legislators, I think, to, to take more conservative stances on that. You see members like Jody Heiss now who rarely vote for bills like this, um, which which 10 years ago, I think, would have been a, a real problem. Yeah. Well, keep in mind, you know, take one step further, not only are they oftentimes bills that got passed with no controversy, they're bills that are very important to the people of Georgia. Uh, Let's not forget, uh, agriculture is the largest industry in our state. Uh, We desperately need uh, these farm bills to get passed and to to move forward and to help farmers. Uh, A lot of times who are in dire situations, being the grandson of a farmer, uh, you know, I, I understand that. And, and so you got to keep that in mind. And I do disagree with Buddy on one thing. A lot of these third party groups aren't necessarily aligned with a particular candidate. They're aligned with their own pocket in that they they need these provocative ads in order to get people to to send them one hundred dollars or fifty dollars or or, or ten dollars a month in order to keep themselves going in order to be relevant. And sometimes it has nothing to do with helping a particular candidate or even helping a particular cause. It's their own um, continued lifestyle that they were interested in. Totally. And there's this whole ecosystem of groups and they need the publicity. You do a provocative ad, a journalist like me is going to be more likely to tweet about it, more likely to write about it. There's another piece of context I want to flag here. You know, we're talking about Doug Collins's uh, status as a really prominent, uh, you know, attack dog for Donald Trump, somebody who's really been able to defend him in the Judiciary Committee. How did he get there? He was a member of the Republican leadership team starting in, in late 2016. Part of the deal that you cut 
if you become a party leader, and this is both sides, is, is you kind of agree when the party needs votes for something that's not so fun, like a government spending bill or to raise the, the debt ceiling or a farm bill. You kind of agree. You've got to be there. You'll yep. be there if they need That's you. That's a really interesting And point. because he was so good in that party perch, he was the number five Republican um, in the House for a little bit, that was what vaulted him into the top oh. Republican That's, position on the Judiciary for, thank Committee. Thank you for saying that. Well, you know, I know you all talked about this last week with President Trump's comments at the press conference. Yeah. But you really, when you sit back and look at these ads, you have to wonder how long Republicans are going to let this go on. Will but it the go comments on? you're talking about are Trump essentially with Leffler and Collins both at his victory celebration in the Easterham saying, gee, I think you'd like each other. Maybe we're going to work something out. Go ahead. Right. Because, I mean, this is brutal and nasty and they're not even paying any attention to any Democrat in the race. And that's a problem. And um, you also have to wonder, though, you know, we're all wondering if Trump will take sides. And we know Trump, President Trump wanted Doug Collins to be the U.S. senator. But now he also has this loyalty to Senator Mitch, the majority leader, Mitch McConnell, after the acquittal. Right. Don't worry, I'll make a prediction. Well, okay. I'll make a prediction so, right here. OK, so we know that Mitch McConnell is supporting Kelly Loeffler. Yep. So does he stay out now and does he work some type of compromise? Yeah, but well, of course he does. What they do is they find a nice federal judgeship for him. A lifetime appointment. A lifetime appointment. Uh, move him up even even to the Circuit Court of Appeals. That's plenty of room. When you're president, you've got all these levers at your disposal. So that's uh, your prediction. You think that's course. where I this is I think you put him either on the U.S. District Court or put him on the Circuit Court of Appeals. Well, two, two points and uh, to, to add to that. Uh, this morning, there was, I think, a signal that was given by Trump in terms of where he will ultimately end up, and that I got a, a uh, email from Newt Gingrich. I'm glad uh, you brought it up. Newt, that Newt endorsed was, Kelly Loeffler today. Kelly Loeffler, yep. and I can guarantee you that Newt Gingrich would not have sent that out without pre-clearing it from the White House. I that's I was that was going to be our next part of the conversation. Anything well, I can do to help, Lori? An endorsement from. Gingrich, who has, of course, stood strongly by President Trump, may very well be a signal that to Doug Collins, look elsewhere, buddy, we'll figure it out. Well, I think His wife is an ambassador to the yes, to right. And I think in your own party, you can never underestimate the power of a sitting incumbency, right? Yeah. I mean, she's now the U.S. senator. She's the incumbent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it, it, tomorrow, it, you know, it, it's going to be fascinating to watch this play out. So we'll we will the Newt Gingrich endorsement today being the latest sign. I want to cross over to the other side of this race, the Democratic side of the race, and point out that Raphael Warnock, now only in the race for a matter of weeks, is already scooping up endorsements. The most prominent of of whom is uh, uh, Jason Carter. The grandson of Jimmy Carter, the 2014 Democratic gubernatorial candidate, uh, it strikes me. And, and Stacey Abrams has now started sending out emails. We're, I bet everybody in this uh, studio is getting them uh, saying we, the most recent one yesterday was we can win with Raphael Warnock. Uh, but in the same way that that we're not co- that the Republicans aren't coalescing completely around Leffler, 
there's still there's still some maneuvering going on on the Democratic side of that race. At the same time, Warnock now basically has the party apparatus behind him, not only in Atlanta, where you have folks yeah. like Stacey Abrams, but in D.C., where he has the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, yeah. which is typically only backing incumbents. Yeah. So Democrats came into this knowing this is a jungle. This is a jungle election. There's a lot of peril if this race goes into a runoff. Democrats historically don't do well here in Georgia. So they kind of knew that they had to try and clear the field as much as they could for their candidate. And that's what they're trying to do. But, but well, keep in mind... This is the Abrams play here. Yeah. This is the Stacey Abrams play which put Warnock in front of the DSCC because yeah. there was a lot of back and forth about who would get the DSCC endorsement. I called them, by the way, on behalf of Michael Thurman. I thought he would have been a much, much stronger candidate. In fact, as I told the DSCC, I've heard both Warnock and Michael Thurman preach and Michael Thurman's a better preacher. Well, I will say this, then, however. Uh, a lot of folks, particularly in this room and, and elsewhere, we sometimes we get Atlanta-centric. The Democrats also have a, a damn fine other candidate running Ed named Tarver, Tarver yeah. who I served with in the, in the uh, General Assembly. Yeah, he, he this week did well, file former, his uh, paperwork. Uh, a former state senator, uh, former U.S. attorney in the Southern District, uh, who did a very good job. Uh, and has built a network down in that area. So I think a lot of folks in Atlanta tend to sort of want to think only about folks coming out of Atlanta. But Ed Tarver is going to be a player. Uh, he is, like I said, he's a very serious-minded uh, public servant and should not be dismissed. I think we. I think it's more not as much Atlanta-centric as it is Stacey Abrams-centric. Yeah. I think once we saw you know, her coming out and favoring Raphael Warnock, because she's got the money behind her, she has the network behind her, she has D.C. behind her, she has the country behind her. I mean, let's be let's be real. So, so Lori, I, oh, I, did, no, did yes. you want to... Okay, yeah. I, I apologize if I interrupt you. So I think we just saw something really interesting right in this studio in terms of Democrats and where they all stand. And in, in Buddy Darden, a few minutes ago made it clear he's not standing with Raphael Warnock right now. Uh, and I suspect, and then we'll let him respond, but I, you know, this goes back to the gubernatorial primary. This goes back to the contingent that we're backing, like Buddy, Stacey Evans. Uh, it did not align with Stacey Abrams. So let's talk about Buddy and his presence and that faction of the party. Well, we're seeing this play out really in national <laughs> politics too, right? We're seeing kind of the more centrist Democrats. Um, Stacey Abrams will argue that she really did run on kind of kitchen table issues, but she really did run left of Jason Carter, Michelle Nunn's of the world. So I think it's a generational effect too. Yeah. But um, Michael Thurman surely is a more moderate candidate yeah. than Raphael Warnock. Yeah, but, Buddy, you, you would say, I mean, you should talk about that, but you would say that this does go back to the very beginning stages of her of both Stacey's gubernatorial efforts and where you, Roy Barnes, and a few other what I call yellow dog Democrats, where you aligned yourselves. And I think your ongoing concern about the Democratic Party not being able to win elections if they're, if it's too liberal. Yes, and that is a concern of me, but I also want to say that uh, Ed, Edward pointed out something very important, and that is Ed Tarver can be a factor here as well. I think it's got to settle in yet, and it's a little early, but uh, what people like me who consider themselves centrist, but yellow dog Democrats, don't like being told, you know, this is, this is your candidate, mm -hmm. and uh, you're going to be with him, and this is, this is the end of the world. So... Uh, that's kind of where we are. We like to, I like to see the process be a little more open and, 
and a little more moderate. Tamara, it isn't, Buddy is not the only Democrat who's been in this studio in the last week and said, prominent Democrats too, we're not quite, we're not there for Raphael Warnock at this point. And the common th- thread has been, we need Michael Thurmond in this race. And by the way, Michael will be on the show on Friday. <laughs> we'll be listening. We maybe should ask him. But anyhow, but but the point is, there is still a, some unsettled feeling about Warnock, partly over his uh, philosophy of politics. And there's also this question as to the record he's established as a preacher. If you're a Republican or a Democratic opponent who really wants to go after him, you've got years of sermons to unpack <laughs> that may find some things. And all his future Sunday sermons that all of us can can go yeah. to every week and, and pick through yeah. his words and see, oh, ooh, is that a campaign statement? Yeah. And the IRS will be watching, too. Yeah. Uh, real quickly, uh, before we take a break and then turn to other politics, I we have Lori, I don't know what it's like on Georgia gang, but Senate race number two, as we've been calling it, has become so dynamic in so many ways. The impeachment, uh, now the primary starting up. Senate race number one, the David Perdue race, has just really become invisible. We don't talk about it much at all on the yeah. Georgia gang. And I feel for the Democratic candidates in that race yeah. because they're just probably chomping at the bit for attention and money. Um, and I think it's really hard for them to raise money right now because there's no attention being played on that race. But is that going to – we know that Tomlinson's had some trouble raising money. Ossoff's done better than the others. But he's still – I mean David Perdue is in a league of, uh, all of self. Of course, he's the incumbent. Will that change once a uh, the, the Democrats choose a nominee in that Senate race? Will the money start flowing in in big numbers? I believe it will. I need to, of course, be quite frank with you. I'm all in with Tomlinson right. because I think she represents the best best chance. Well, she's got all the endorsements. And I mean, all the of the endorsements, and, yeah. she, and she will raise the money. This is not an auction, and I I really don't think uh, whoever runs against David Perdue will have anything like the money. But I think once you reach a certain amount of money, you reach the point of diminishing returns. And uh, in my opinion, and I've said this many times with all deference to my colleagues here, most political money is wasted. And so uh, once you get a certain amount, once you go beyond that, then it becomes something for the, for the consultants and the people with a new product and, and other things, things to do. So we will have enough money uh, for our Democratic Democratic nominee in uh, race race number one. I think the issue is incumbency because Purdue has become the person that he ran against six years ago. I think overall, in the the observation, kind of the big picture, I think when we look at these races and we see who wins, will this be about the money or will this be about where Georgia is? Is it blue? Is it red? Is it purple? Um, because the the Kelly Lefflers and the Senator David Perdue have so much more money right now than the Democrats or, you know, the other opponents, will it matter? And I think this could be one year where we look and see where it matters. Yeah. Well, and, and, and as far as the Democratic Party, the question is where the Democratic Party is, because particularly as it's lining up uh, with uh, the, the, the Senate race for the Democrats against, Ms., uh, against Senator Perdue, you've got uh, former Mayor Thomason from Columbus, with a record as a mayor uh, versus John Ossoff, uh, who uh, is a uh, investigative journalist uh, from DeKalb County. Yeah. Uh, so it's basically going to be urban Atlanta uh, versus rural Georgia or, or outside of, outside the perimeter 
for the Democratic Party. And the question is, where is the Democratic Party ultimately going to well, land? Well, and that's crucial tomorrow. I know you might, you can say what you want, but let me throw this at you to also answer. We have a hard time in this state electing people who aren't from Metro Atlanta. You've got an Ed Tarver Augusta. You've got a Teresa Tomlinson Columbus. Yeah. It's the Metro Atlanta candidates who have the easiest time usually getting the attention and the money they need. But go ahead. You want to know my prediction is yes. that it'll have very little to do with who who these people actually are as Democrats and more about the broader where the party is going. So who the Democratic nominee for president is going to be, who is ultimately picked in Senate race uh, two, and how much attention and excitement does that drive. Well, because that's all really... of these races, including the House races down, down ballot, they all move together. And, and I'll go that's one a... step further. This That's going to be the, the most interesting thing in, in, in 2020. And it's not just the who's, who's the presidential candidate will impact the Senate race, the congressional race, but it's going to impact who's going to be your state representative, your state senator, your DA, because so many elections that I'm seeing now are nationalized, even though they are very local right. races. Right. One, buddy, you get the last word in this segment. I just wanted to point out uh, if this is the appropriate time for this segment that I went to two Democratic fundraisers uh, sponsored by Kelly Leffler. One for David Scott at her house uh, a number of years ago, and one at their business for the uh, chairman of the Senate Agriculture Committee, who was a Democrat, uh, Senator Blanche Lincoln from Arkansas. So what I'm saying is uh, this is going to be a very, very muddled kind of uh, race before Yeah, I think there were people who were a little taken aback when Kelly Leffler chose to attack Mitt Romney for his vote to convict the president when she had given him a considerable amount of money, uh, Lori, in uh, his presidential race. I think I think a little, people were a little shocked she would attack him in general, but beyond that, having supported his campaign for president. I, well, I think people maybe on the outside were shocked, but were the political observers, you know, when she's up against I, Doug Collins? You're right. Right? You're right. You're right. <laughs> maybe I'm more naive. <laughs> All right, let's do this. a little too cute. Yeah. Let's get a break out of the way. And when we come back, uh, we are going to turn and talk about New Hampshire, which is uh, unfolding. The polls have been open in most precincts in, uh, in New Hampshire since 7. Some don't open till 8 because they're locally run. Uh, but people are voting. And we're going to talk about what that means when we come back. We're back on Political Rewind. Um, see, Lindsay is just talking. I get no respect in this room. <laughs> Would you take control of this show? I'll do my best. Please. I'll um, be before we talk about New Hampshire, I just want to, and, and you're the perfect group to have here today, especially I think you, buddy, but probably you too, Edward. Um, I want to make note of the fact that uh, we lost one of the Georgia Republicans par- Republican parties kind of most remarkable forces back in the uh, late 80s, the 90s. Uh, Dot Burns died yesterday down at St. Simon Island where she'd been living. Uh, She happens to be the uh, the mother-in-law of Eric Tannenblatt, our frequent panelist. Dot Padgett was a Republican when being a Republican in Georgia, buddy, wasn't cool. That's right. Dot Burns. <laughs> Dot Burns. I'm Dot, so sorry. Dot Burns was a real deal. And she always believed from the time she started in the politics until her death that uh, 
It was all about the Republican Party and building the Republican Party and the principles of the Republican Party. It wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the trappings. It was a philosophical belief in what she was doing. And uh, my brother, uh, John, who lives in Gainesville, uh, had a very high regard for her. He's a physician there. And, of course, as you know, uh, Dot's husband is a physician. And they are highly respected. And I think she probably did more for the Republican Party to give it credibility and, re- and respect than anybody uh, on the scene today. Yeah, Edward, Dot Burns was out of Gainesville. Yep. She went to work. She worked with Paul. I remember her very, uh, very uh, uh, vividly. Uh, back when she was uh, involved working with Paul Coverdale when he was in state legislature. That's correct. And uh, she was a little woman, not not very big, but fierce. She could be incredibly fierce. She had kind of white cropped hair. Uh, and, and as Buddy says, she was just completely committed to the, uh, uh, to the Republican Party principles. Uh, a force of nature. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and someone who helped build the two-party system here in Georgia. And uh, I'm a great believer in the in two parties are, are better than one party dominating uh, constantly because you end up with better government when you have two strong parties, and um, and we will we will all miss her. I one personal note is that uh, back in those days when uh, Paul Coverdale used to love having Saturday morning news conferences because he figured he'd get on TV on a Saturday night when, when there wasn't much news he believed happening. And uh, what I, one of my fondest personal memories about Dot is that I used to bring my son to Paul Coverdale's Saturday morning news conferences when he was you know four years old or whatever. And as fierce as she was and as steely as she could be in dealing with a lot of people, I have such vivid memories of how sweet she was in taking my son in hand and and talking with him and entertaining him <laughs> while the grown-ups in the room were dealing with uh, politics. So I just wanted to say a few words, and I'm glad you you joined me uh, in that. Um, An absolute class act. Yeah. So our condolences go out to uh, to Eric and to his wife Mary uh, on on the loss of a, a remarkable uh, public figure but also, obviously, a, a remarkable family woman. All right, uh, let's talk politics. Tamar, um, so here we go. It's New Hampshire Day. I'm going to just go over, and I know these figures are familiar to, to those of you in the studio, but, but let, let me set it up. We, and let me start by saying, this is the day, tomorrow when normally we think, oh, thank goodness, New Hampshire is going to begin the winnowing of the field. We see no indication of any sort that that's going to happen today. So let's just look quickly at where we stand. Uh, Quinnipiac released a poll uh, yesterday. Their polling is kind of a, a goal, one of the gold standard polls out there. And, and this is what they found after the weekend of polling. Um, they put, as most polling does now, Bernie Sanders out front, 25 percent of the vote. Uh, Biden, 17 percent. Well, these are this is national, I should say. I'm, th- I'm, I'm sorry. This is the national polling. Uh, Bernie out front at 25. Uh, uh, Biden in uh, second place at 17. But then um, we've got Pete Buttigieg right on his heels. And amazingly enough, all of a sudden, uh, Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg, is up there in third place. But in New Hampshire specifically, uh, it's Bernie Sanders is the one who everybody says you've got to beat. He's out front. 
Yeah, and, and you know he's from the neighboring state of Vermont, so people are very familiar with him in New Hampshire. He did really, really well there in in 2016 over Hillary Clinton. Um, and, and the reason why you mentioned how how normally we we have such a great picture of what's going to happen in New Hampshire is usually the Iowa results are a little more conclusive. And and the results were so muddied last week. And we're only just now seeing, you know, uh, Pete Buttigieg might have gotten more delegates in Iowa, but Bernie Sanders might have gotten more votes. And so everyone is declaring that they're a winner. And and it seems like there are at least five or six candidates who who still are going to make it through these next couple weeks. So uh, then you have a front runner like Joe Biden, who's who's really downplaying how he'll do in, in New Hampshire and saying, no, 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 wait and see how I I do in South Carolina and Nevada, where there are more voters of color, where it looks more like uh, Georgia and the rest of America, and you'll see me come back. In some ways, uh, Laurie, it strikes me that it's the trend lines in, in, in New Hampshire specifically now that are most interesting to keep our eye on today. Uh, Buttigieg has had an extraordinary rise since uh, Iowa, where he came in first, arguably. Uh, Biden has fallen off a cliff in many ways in the New Hampshire numbers. And interestingly enough, all of a sudden, Amy Klobuchar is getting a lot of attention. One of her rallies this weekend, the police had to turn people away from the event. There were about a thousand people in a hall, apparently, but it was so crowded that they had to send people to an auxiliary room. So those trend lines seem to be moving up at just the right moment. Elizabeth Warren has fallen off a bit, but the kicker is there's a double-digit percentage of people who say, as of yesterday, they weren't sure who they were voting for. <laughs> because there is really no front runner. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of excitement around Bernie Sanders. but um, And I think it also goes to the fact that you know, a lot of people say, well, there aren't a lot of delegates you know, in Iowa and New Hampshire, and it doesn't really represent you know, the majority of what the country looks like. But this is all the media talks about for weeks and mm-hmm. months at a time. And so if you don't do well in these states, you lose this momentum. I mean, ask Rudy Giuliani, right? Um, So everybody's been talking about Pete Buttigieg. Everybody's been talking about Bernie Sanders, even though there was no outcome for a week of how how either one did in the Iowa caucuses. But they've been they've been out there. The media has been I I even heard on the way in. Everybody's talking about Bernie Sanders campaign manager. He's on the air. He's talking about how they're going to win and how they're going to message. So that's where the momentum comes in. That's where the money comes in. And I think the the biggest disappointment is Elizabeth Warren showing. I mean, these are her states. These are where she's worked the hardest. I mean, she's in New Hampshire um, and she's not doing as well. And this is I mean, if there's anybody who's, you know, Kind of the balloon is deflating. I think it's Elizabeth Warren, and I think we'll we'll see that in some of her fundraising numbers going forward. Buddy, a vast majority of Democrats, which includes me, is for the candidate they think can beat Donald Trump. That is the ultimate test uh, as to who you support. And in my view, uh, Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders are not electable against Donald Trump. Now, I served in the House of Representatives with. Bernie Sanders, and he's hard to love. Uh, Elizabeth Warren comes across as a, as a woman who comes in and wants to speak to the manager always. Uh, and you know, what, we have, so what we have here is people, I think, kind of like me, uh, sitting back to say what's going to happen here. And Michael Bloomberg is moving up, too. You saw that by a few indications in New Hampshire. Plus, his partner of many years, Diana Taylor, is going to be here at an event, fundraising event, this Thursday. So uh, you've got the Bloomberg uh, 
initiative, which is fueled by a whole lot of money, and a real sincere doubt on behalf of the Democrats of who can we nominate uh, that can be elected. And right now, uh, people are losing losing faith in Biden because they see him going down and not doing well, and then they're kind of moving to Klobuchar, I believe. So I think all these factors are in play. If, if, if I can step back a little bit, sort of, and look at New Hampshire historically, its role has never really been picking whoever the nominee is for a respective party. I mean, uh, it's never really been a very good indicator of that. But what it has historically always been is a winnowing of the field. It's to show who coming out of New Hampshire should be considered viable and who's not. That's changed in this year in particular. And now instead of New Hampshire fulfilling that role, we have a combination of early polls, debates, and fundraising. Think about the folks that have already been winnowed before the New Hampshire voters vote, uh, including such folks as Cory Booker, yeah. Kamala Harris, a former uh, administrative uh, secretary, Julian Castro, and, and other governors and other senators. The field is no longer winnowed by, by a state like New Hampshire. It's now winnowed, you know, in the fall uh, by things that have nothing to do with a voter ever in entering the booth. In part by the media primary. And, and the media primary. But I'm, that's my whole point is that, yeah. is that things have changed. And so the question is from here on, what role will New Hampshire and Iowa now play given the fact that who decides who is viable and who's not takes place way before the first vote is ever cast in those two respective small states? Um, Tamar, anybody who uh, uh, pays attention closely to New Hampshire primary day uh, knows that that the big deal, some reporters can't help but make the trek to Dixville Notch, which is located about 18 miles from the Canadian border in the far northern reaches of New Hampshire, because Dixville Notch and a few of the communities around it, uh, there's a state law in New Hampshire that if you have a community of under a certain number of people, residents, you can cast your votes right after midnight. Dixville Notch has always done that. Uh, the results in Dixville Notch are virtually meaningless for the rest of the state, but it doesn't stop dozens of reporters from showing up. So the Associated Press just said, former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg won the votes of a tiny New Hampshire community that barely hung on to its tradition of being among the first to cast ballots in the presidential primary. Uh, that's because they couldn't find enough registered voters. You have to have at least five. They finally did. Dixville Notch's five <laughs> residents cast their ballots just after midnight Tuesday. Michael Bloomberg received three write-in votes, one from a Republican, two from Democrats. The remaining votes went to Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders. Just, it's, just as a little note to uh, start the count off, right? <laughs> sure. And, and, you know, it's worth noting about Michael Bloomberg, he hasn't really stepped foot in New Hampshire. No. So that's pretty notable when you think about it. But I want to piggyback off something Ed said. And so much of the importance of New Hampshire and Iowa are kind of setting a tone, setting a narrative, setting a sense of momentum, whether that's real or not. But, but that does matter when it comes to fundraising. And you look at somebody like Joe Biden, who is a pretty big campaign operation to sustain, who's been spending a lot of money, who needs to keep that up. And so if, if you're coming out weak from these results, you know, you're coming in fifth, in New Hampshire, that makes it a lot harder to keep fundraising and showing, hey, I am still the most elected candidate um, against um, 
the most electable guy against somebody like Donald Trump. And, and that's the challenge that, that Joe Biden's going to face. So, Laurie, one of the reasons it's valuable for us, I think, particularly to look at what Joe Biden's fate could be, is that he's won the support of so many Georgia elected officials. I mean, he is by far the choice of everybody from uh, the mayor of Atlanta mm-hmm. to any number of state legislators and others. And, uh, and, and he appears to be vying for fourth or maybe even fifth place in New Hampshire. But I think that you cannot discount the importance of the minority vote, and it hasn't been tested yet. Absolutely. It will not be tested until we get to South Carolina. Um, And I think that's where Pete Buttigieg will struggle. I think it's where Michael Bloomberg will will struggle. He's there's been a leaked tape today about the stop and frisk and things, comments that he has said, which would be very damaging in the African-American community. So I think um, I think we'll have a better handle perhaps after South Carolina. And I think if you think back, you know, this back to 1992 with Bill Clinton, he didn't win a lot of states, right, Um, Right. early on. And so, you know, and I think, gosh, we don't even know who, we're not even close to a front runner right now. So I think we really have to see where the majority of the party will end up, especially minority voters. Although it is worth noting, buddy, that this Quinnipiac national poll uh, does show Joe Biden dropping 22 percent of his African-American support across the country since Iowa. That is startling for him. It's troubling. It's troubling. And what it does, it discourages the people who are already with him. That's the real danger there is uh, the fact that if you come out for Joe Biden and you think he's a, he's the one and then all of a sudden you look around and people are falling off, then then the money doesn't, doesn't come in. And he's got as... We've all talked about the firewall in South Carolina, but that's even more true now. And that puts a total pressure. If he doesn't do well in South Carolina, uh, he's finished. But you would agree with Laurie that Iowa, New Hampshire, not the tests that Joe Biden needs, even though they could weaken his campaign as he heads south in terms of fundraising, particularly. They already dropped ads. They didn't have the money to pay for the TV ads they'd booked in South Carolina and Nevada. So the money is going to be an issue no matter what. Well, I think more than ever before, especially by the results we saw in Iowa and now what we're seeing in New Hampshire, I think these two states are becoming irrelevant. And I would be surprised if there's another Iowa caucus uh, in four years like we had we had this time because the, the states have changed. They're all lily white. Uh, they're not representative of the United States in general. And I think the DNC needs to step in and change the program. And I think the same is true for New Hampshire. Uh, I'll be real surprised if New Hampshire continues to hold uh, its coveted place as the first primary in four years, uh, given the changing demographics of this country and given the changing uh, demographics of the of the center of the Democratic Party. Uh, getting back to the issue of Biden that you raised, the, the question is, and we'll, we'll, we'll discover it in South Carolina, is, is is he a wizened veteran who could come out scarred but strong out of New Hampshire, or did he have a glass jaw? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and it turns out he just doesn't have what it takes. And, and, and we'll find that out, I guess, in 18 days from now. But, uh, but, and, you know, but I will also t- tell folks this. Is right now, I think around this table, we can come up with reasons why just about everyone who is now still in the game in the Democratic primary can't possibly get the nomination. Yeah, yeah. But one of them will. Yeah. And the question is, given whatever negative they may have, 
and each of them has a significant negative. Which one can pierce through that, that, that negative uh, part of their uh, background and, and seize control? And that's what we're still waiting to see between now and Super Tuesday uh, when the folks here in Georgia and elsewhere start voting. Yeah, before I take a break, Tom Faustio sent me a headline from Politico. They just moved it. It's apropos of our conversation tomorrow. This Democratic field is so flawed that even Biden still has a chance. That's, <laughs> I assume that's an op-ed piece. I haven't had a chance to, uh, to look at Oh, Ryan Liz. That was a Ryan Liz's story. I mean, Ryan Liz is a very careful, close observer of uh, politics. Um, Lori Geary said something interesting about Clinton in 92, because one of the things we're going to watch tonight, Lori, is the spin that each campaign puts on uh, whatever their numbers are. And I think we could argue that every single one, well, maybe not everyone, but most of these candidates tonight is going to be able to find a rationale for continuing to Nevada and then South Carolina. So the spin will be fascinating. In 92, when Clinton finished second in New Hampshire, um, after the Jennifer Flowers scandal had hit him hard, I, and he came to Georgia the very next day. So I was brought in late on the night of the New Hampshire results to do a one-on-one interview with Clinton. And on the way into that interview, one of his campaign press people turned to me and said, and this was before it became public, I wasn't the only one, other reporters had been given this line too, certainly, turned to me and said, come on, let's go see Governor Clinton. You know, this proves he's really the comeback kid. And that line stuck with him throughout that entire campaign. So we'll watch the spin uh, tonight at the end of the evening. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back and talk more about politics on Political Rewind. Let's uh, finish up uh, Political Rewind today. Uh, Lori Geary is with us. Tamar Hellerman, Edward Lindsay, Buddy Darden. Uh, I, Tom Faust pointed out we have, if you're watching on Facebook Live, the journalists are on the uh, side to the, of the uh, panel of the uh, table to my left, the elected officials on the right. So clear dividing line down the middle. I like to say recovering journalists. Recovering. Yeah. That's right. You know, I, that's and recovering right. politicians. That's, right. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> Buddy, I've asked this question several times, but you're a veteran of Georgia Democratic Party politics, so it's a appropriate question to pose to you and then bring the rest of the panel in on. Uh, we talked a minute ago about Biden, some, you know, the sense that, that Lori uh, has that we haven't seen the African-American vote. We'll see it in South Carolina. So it would be a mistake to say his campaign isn't getting anywhere. But you're worried about it. What happens to the Georgia Democrats who have gotten behind him? Where do they go next? New Hampshire may tell us a bit about where they'll go if Biden cannot survive all the way to Georgia. We may start seeing what they, they think as they see how New Hampshire goes, how South Carolina goes. Where are they going to go? Well, Biden would quote Mark Twain, and he would say that the reports of his death, you know, have been highly exaggerated. And the situation is, I think we might be getting a little ahead of things because this politics changes, you know, from day to day, from hour to hour. Uh, assuming that your hypothesis is correct and that uh, he doesn't do well in South Carolina and then he, he comes out of it, where do the Democrats go? I would say Klobuchar would be... Uh, a reasonable choice. Uh, however, I've been very surprised at the enthusiasm and support that I've seen cropping up for Bloomberg. Now, it's not spontaneous. It's uh, well-fueled. 
It's, uh, it's He's already built a pretty sizable organization here he in has, Georgia. And I didn't attend the event at Pascal's, but I understand it was well attended and by a lot of very prominent, prominent Democrats. And so uh, I think I think we're floundering a little bit it, we're in a wait and see position. I think the first choice would be if Biden remains, remains viable. Yes. But assuming just for the sake of the conversation that he doesn't, uh, they'll be all over the place. Primarily, I think, towards someone like Klobuchar. Real quick, tomorrow, uh, uh, President Trump uh, was in Manchester last night, had a big rally. Uh, he's on the ballot, uh, and he's expected to win virtually all the Republican votes, but uh, he's on the Republican ballot, of course. But uh, one of the things he said last night was he encouraged people who uh, support him to choose the weak, who they think is the weakest democratic, would be the weakest against him and go and vote for them, which if you can do under certain circumstances in New Hampshire, uh, we won't get into the complications of it, but people can cross party lines or independents can vote either way. I've never heard a candidate, her or himself, actually encourage people to do that. And it usually doesn't work no matter who's saying it. Because I remember hearing echoes of that in 2016 where Democrats were saying vote for Donald Trump because yeah. he's not the electable yeah. one. Yeah. So yeah. be That's careful well that you know, what you tell people. We have a Georgia tradition with that because a lot of Republicans back in 1966 Went to the uh, Demo- went and voted in the Democratic primary for a guy named Lester Maddox, who couldn't possibly beat Bo Calloway. And next thing we did, we ended up with Lester Maddox. But to also sort of pivot back to the to, to 2020 uh, and the primaries, keep in mind it's all about delegates at this point. And while we focus on South Carolina and Georgia, the primaries, a big primary on Super Tuesday now is California. And I was reading yesterday about the two organizations that are that are working the hardest on the ground in California are Mayor Bloomberg and Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lori, we should put everything in perspective. New Hampshire today on the Democratic side mm-hmm. will end up apportioning 24 <laughs> delegates to the Democratic convention. Uh, by contrast, when Georgia votes on March 24th, there will be 105 delegates at stake. So just to put it all in perspective. That's what I said. It's still very early. Um, I know that, you know, people watch the CNNs, the MSNBCs, the Fox News, and they think, oh, my gosh, you know, this is it. But it, there's still a long way to go. Buddy, you want to get the last word in? I want to get the last word in and say that it- Edward is eminently correct because whenever you try to get involved in other people's politics, it always backfires. And we can we can thank the Republicans for bringing us less than that <laughs> in 1966. So, uh, and there have been other examples on both sides, yeah, by the way. So. I would think that that's not a very wise thing to do by the president. All right. We are going to be watching tonight uh, closely. Everybody, you all stay up late for this? No. no. Buddy says, no way. I'm I, I watch Perry Mason. I do. I get, I get a, a I bowl of Me popcorn, too. and it's <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm in. I'm all in. I can't help it. Political I'm, junkies. I'm with you. I'm with you, Lori Geary. And you don't have to worry anymore because your portfolio is so much larger than politics now. I can pick tomorrow. and choose issues to write about as <laughs> I see great. fit. Pretty nice. All right. We are completely out of time uh, for today's show. I really appreciate everybody being with us for Political Rewind. We'll, of course, be uh, back here uh, tomorrow. Well, you you can listen if you only heard part of the show at nine. We're back on the air at two tomorrow morning at nine. We've got a panel of analysts 
uh, who are going to come in and talk with us about what happened in New Hampshire, what it may mean moving forward. So I hope you don't miss that show. Uh, and of course, you can always listen to our podcast. You can listen to us online at politicsgpb.org. I mean, there's all sorts of ways you can get Political Rewind, and I hope you do. I'm Bill Nygut. See you later. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.